Let me set the stage for you. So Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, waiting to, to go take possession of the promised land. And they're finally there. They, they meet at the river. All the previous generation has passed away. Moses has died. And Joshua has assumed uh, responsibility or the leadership for Israel. The last time we saw them cross over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. So imagine, if you will, then a more modern uh, illustration of what was going on. If we think back to World War II. World War II, Germany sweeps through, takes most of the, the continent of Europe. And the, the allies gather, and they start to plan. And they make all sorts of plans and strategies uh, to invade into Europe to take it back. And of course, we know D-Day and when they go into Normandy and all the beaches in France. But it wasn't just a, hey, let's get together and we're just crossing over. But rather, it was planned and orchestrated. What's going on with Israel is a little bit different than that. You would think that maybe it would be like that, right? They get to the river, we're going to go invade this land. The first place they're, they're going to take over is going to be Jericho, with its gigantic walls, one of the most fortified cities uh, in the world at that time. And so this is their strategy. They get to the river, and they cross over. Once they've crossed over, God will tell them to go through with the ritual of circumcision and then celebrate the Passover. Now, I'm no military strategist, but when you're on the cusp of a battle, within sight of your enemy, maybe not the best time to throw a party, right? Or a celebration, or some sort of a festival. I mean, it doesn't make any sense, right? It's just a weird thing. Why didn't he do this before they crossed over? Why does he wait until they're into the land before he has them partake in these things? It's not logical. Nobody would plan an invasion of a foreign country like this. So what was God trying to teach Israel? And then also us. Because he wasn't just teaching Israel a lesson, but he was also teaching us a lesson by recording what happened. So what I think we see here is that God wants to establish a foundation for Israel for them to understand what his expectation is of a follower of Yahweh. That if you're going to say you're one of my people, that you're Israel, that you're a follower of mine, this is what the expectation is. And so as we go through chapter 5, we're going to see uh, three marks of a true believer. You know, or three uh, aspects of a true believer. Or things that identify what a true believer is. And so our first one is going to be in uh, Joshua 5, 1 through 7. Joshua 5, 1 through 7. And it says, As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that Yahweh had dried up the lands, or dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, 
their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibbeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness, after they had come out of Egypt, had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So, It was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So I think the first mark of a true believer that we see here is that fear and respect of God by itself is not an identifying feature of a true believer. Let me say that again for you. Fear and respect of God is not a mark of a true believer. Follow me here. We see at the very beginning the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites saw Israel coming. They had heard about Israel. They knew what had happened in Egypt. And they were afraid. They feared Israel. And they feared Israel's God, Yahweh. But did it provide salvation for them? It didn't provide salvation for them. And look at the contrast. So here are these kings of the Canaanites and the Amorites and all their people. They see Yahweh and Israel coming. And they're afraid. Over here, we have Rahab, who we had looked at before. Rahab feared Yahweh and finds salvation. So fear and respect of God alone is not a mark or an identifying feature of a true believer. If we look at James chapter 2, and you guys are studying through this, So I'm sure you've been through this passage fairly recently. James chapter 2, James looks back at this to talk about the idea of just having faith or just having belief and claiming, look, I have my belief, I have my faith in God, so I have salvation, that that's not the case. So he says in James chapter 2, starting in verse 14, he says, what good is it My brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, 
without giving him the things that needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. Faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body, apart from the spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. So here, James is looking at the same idea, that you have the kings of the Amorites, the kings of the Canaanites, you can put the demons over in this camp, you can put the religious leaders at Jesus' time over in this camp, they all made this profession of faith, this profession of belief, a recognition of Yahweh, of God, but it didn't bring them salvation. It wasn't a mark of true faith. On the other side, you have Rahab, Ruth following her, going on down to the disciples, who also have a faith, a belief, a fear of God, yet they find salvation. So what's the difference? Well, is it just simply works? Well, let me say this. Good works is also not a mark of a true believer. So belief and good works are not marks of a true believer. Follow me here. Joshua 5.2. We go back to Joshua he says, at the time, Yahweh says, Joshua, go ahead and circumcise the people. And you say, well, why weren't they circumcised? Well, they had been wandering in the wilderness and they had not been circumcised while they wandered through the wilderness. While they were wandering through the wilderness, there were people that had been circumcised. Those people had been obedient to God. They were circumcised. They followed the rules. They did what God had asked. They had their good works. They did not get to cross over the Jordan into the promised land. Their good works were not enough to provide salvation for them to cross into the promised land. On the other hand, you had the entire group of people that had been born since they left Egypt that had not been circumcised, had not followed the rules, the law, the instructions that God had given, and they're brought through the Jordan and into the promised land and told you're going to inherit this land. 
So here we have those with the good works, not finding salvation, those seemingly without good works, without the circumcision, receiving blessing. And it says that he raised up that new generation. So it's neither a fear of Yahweh, nor the good works, even if it's following the instructions of Yahweh, that provides salvation. So if that's the case, what is it? What is it that provides salvation? Paul, in 1 Corinthians, starts to talk about this idea. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. You see, all these people went through the wilderness. They all ate the same thing. They followed the same spiritual rules, but they did not all find blessing. They all did not get the crossover into the promised land. And Paul is right. You can experience that same exodus. You can eat the manna. You can drink the water. And you can still remain in unbelief without salvation. You may come to church every week, sing in the choir. You may preach sermons and not be saved. You may hold physical membership here on earth without holding a spiritual membership. So what then marks you as a true believer? So if our first point is that fear of God and good works are not marks of a true believer, our second point then is that belief, fear of God, and good works are the marks of a true believer. He said, wait a minute, you can't have it both ways. Preacher, it's not right. You can't say on one hand that these things are not marks, and on the other hand say, these are marks. We'll follow along. Joshua 5.8. It says, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, so that the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover. On the 14th day of the month, in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So here's what the difference is. For a true believer, their faith 
their trust, their belief is in a providential God, a sovereign God that has made promises to them. It's not just a neutral type fear or, or uh, you know, some sort of a fear that says, I'm scared of this God because He can damage me. But rather it's a, I fear this God because He is the Creator, the sovereign ruler of this world, but He's made promises to me and I trust that He will keep His word. I mean, that's the difference between those kings and Rahab. Rahab said, we've heard everything about you. We heard what happened in Egypt. We heard what happened on your way here. We know what your God can do. And we're terrified of him. Show me mercy. I'll follow him. I'll worship him. I'm giving myself to him. Ruth, likewise, does the same thing. She says to Naomi, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. I will die in your land. I will be buried in your land. She commits herself fully to this providential God that she trusts will keep His Word. Unlike the older generation, when they got to the promised land, their spies went in, came back and said, we'll never be able to take this land. Joshua and Caleb say, we can take it. And the people choose, rather than listening to Yahweh, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, they listen to the other spies. And they have a greater fear of man than they do of God. And they don't trust in Yahweh. It doesn't mean that they didn't fear Him. They feared Him. They believed in Him. But they didn't trust in the mercy and care of that God. And so what God does is He brings Israel through the river, sets them in the promised land, and then three things happen that show them that they can have a trust in this God. That they can have a trust in Yahweh that's delivered them there. First, he does the circumcision. And as crazy as it seems to do, that circumcision was a sign of what? It was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham. That initial promise to Abraham that started everything that's happening here. The promise to Abraham of, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to give you a lot of offspring. And I'm going to give blessings to the entire world through you. And I'm going to establish you in a land. Offspring, land, and blessing. Those three promises were all pointed at through circumcision. It was a reminder for them, remember what started this. Remember the promise that God made to you. And now you're standing here in the land that He promised to you. Do you not think He's going to fulfill the rest of it? Then, they celebrate the Passover. And the Passover was a reminder of the salvation that God had provided to them. They were enslaved in Egypt. There's no way that Israel can leave Egypt. One, Egypt's not going to let them go. I mean, they need them there for their economy. They're not going to let it wipe out their economy. Israel has no military might, no weapons to speak of to overthrow Egypt. 
You can't just run away. It's not like you can catch a flight to a non-extraditing country. I mean, you're walking away from where you're enslaved. It's an impossibility. Yet Yahweh performed the impossible. And it was commemorated with the Passover. The Passover was that reminder to them that through the sacrifice of that lamb, you found salvation. You found freedom from your bondage in Egypt. So now they've been reminded, remember the covenant promise I made to you? Remember the salvation I provided to you when you cried out? When you were helpless? And then, look what he says. It says that they ate of the produce of the land. And then the manna stopped. Now, think if you're Israel. You're in the wilderness. You're starting to wander. It's the beginning of the 40 years. You're hungry. What are we going to do? God, we need food. Manna comes. Magical food comes out of nowhere. And they eat it. I mean, it's pretty impressive. You're going to be impressed, right? That first day, it's like, this is awesome. The second day, this is still pretty cool. Third day, fourth day. Three years in... Manna's not that exciting anymore, right? We've been doing manna on Mondays through Sundays. Like, what? This is not exciting anymore. It's still miraculous. It's still incredible. But it's just the same thing over and over and over again. And then they hit the promised land. They cross over. And no longer are they eating manna but now they're eating of the produce of the land. Fruits and vegetables and meat and milk and honey like they had not seen in 40 years. Imagine being a 40-year-old man and this is your first time you're starting to eat of this wide variety of food. You didn't have to eat manna for 40 years, people. If you had trusted me and obeyed me, you would have been eating at this buffet a long time ago. God could have given them all sorts of food as they wandered through the wilderness. He didn't have to give them manna. He chose to give them the same food every day over and over and over again for 40 years. So that when they got to the promised land, they saw the blessing of the produce and the, the, what they were able to eat now look, this is what God's done for us. He sustained us in the wilderness, and now look at the bountiful harvest that he's laid out for us. And it was a reminder to them of that sustenance, of the promise-keeping nature of God over their lives. So God's establishing with Israel, I'm to be feared, but you can trust me. I'm not going to destroy you. I'm not going to wipe you out. I have your best intentions in mind. Trust me. Put yourself at my mercy. And that's the difference between someone that just acknowledges God, maybe even fears God, that does good works, but doesn't trust in God. Versus Rahab and Ruth and all the saints throughout history Fear God, have trust in God, 
do good works, but are trusting in the mercy that God can provide for them. Good works, true believers, are obedient to the commands of God. Again, it's, this is not a rational instruction. Cross over the river. Now, physically harm yourselves. Celebrate a feast. And then we're going to go attack the city. That's not logical. It makes zero sense at all. But true believers say, despite what I might think, despite what my best plans are, despite what my intentions are, God's given me commands. He's given me instructions. I'm going to follow them. You know, God says, let your yes be yes, your no be no. You know, be honest. Don't lie. And then we get into a business situation and we're faced with the temptation to lie. If we tell the truth, we may lose money, we may lose our job, may lose a client. But if we lie, we shade the truth, then we can keep them. And we justify it. Well, God doesn't want me to provide for my family. So if I don't do this, then I'm going to lose my job. I can't provide for my family. So I'm justified in doing this. God's not going to count it against me. No. God said, here's my instructions. He doesn't say, these are my instructions. Follow them as long as it's easy. You know? I mean, Jesus says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, take up your fun bag and follow after me, right? No, he says, take up your cross, an instrument of death, and follow after me. His instructions are what they are. We think about the instructions for marriage and divorce. He says marriage is between a singular man and a singular woman, and it's going to be for life. And then we get to today. And I had a friend who committed serial adultery over and over and over throughout the years. And sitting down and, and talking to him about it, working through, he said, look, God wants me to be happy. You know? And I am not happy in my marriage. It's not a happy marriage, and it's not good for my kids because I'm not happy, my wife's not happy, and God wants me to be happy. He wants what's best for me, you know, so I think I'm okay to get this, you know, to get a divorce. And I said, you have no reason for a divorce. Your happiness is not the instruction. The instruction is be married. And in fact, it's not always going to be happy and easy in a marriage. Kelly and I, when we were first married, we got into probably our first big argument. And, and we came from starkly different backgrounds. She came from an unbelieving background where divorce was the norm and repeated Family members, two, three divorces. And so we get into our first argument, and she says, well, fine. I guess we're just going to end up having to get a divorce, aren't we? I said, wait a minute. Hold on. Set the argument off to the side for one minute. I said, divorce is out of the option. God says, don't get divorced. So that's not an option. Now, let's work through our difficulty. And that's been our, our guideline for the rest of our 30 years of marriage, is that that's not an option. We don't have the escape hatch of divorce. So we have to work through our differences. And at times, 
I have to sacrifice. I may have to sacrifice my happiness, my free time. At other times, Kelly sacrifices. Because God's desire is not your happiness and what you desire. God's desire is that you follow His will, that you're obedient, and that you trust in Him. The mark of a believer is not happiness. The mark of a believer is joy, right? Not because of their circumstances now, but because of what they know is to come. So true believers are marked by a belief in God and by the good works that they do. And those good works don't provide salvation. There is, James said, that justification, that evidence for the heart that's been changed. Then Joshua continues. So, fear of God, fear of Yahweh, good works are not a mark of a believer, but when the trust is in God, then those things are the mark of a true believer. And then the third thing is that true believers are marked by who they follow. True believers are marked by who they follow. So Joshua 5.13 says, When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us? Or for our adversaries? And he said, no, neither. But I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of Yahweh's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So let's clear this up first before we get into this. Who is this man, this strange man? I'll put forward that this is a pre-incarnate Christ. That this is Christ that has come. And I would say that because Joshua worships him. So it's not just an angel because angels reject worship. Don't worship me. You're here to worship God, not me. They don't make the ground holy. This individual here commands the angels, commands the army of Yahweh. He accepts worship and he makes the area around him just by his own presence holy. So I would say this is Jesus. So, true believers are marked by who they follow. So the first thing Joshua asks this guy, he says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And our expectation of the response would be that God would say, oh, I'm with you, Joshua. I've always been with you. I'm with Israel. But he doesn't respond that way. When Joshua says, are you with us or against us? Jesus tells him, no, neither. Because Yahweh is not following Israel. 
Yahweh is not there to back up Israel. Yahweh is not there to help out Israel. Israel is there to follow God. Israel is there as support for God and to worship Him. And so right away he clears it up. Are you here for us or for our enemies? No. Joshua, you're here for me. Okay? I'm not not here for you. You're following me. I don't follow you. And it's the same thing for us. We often treat God as our spiritual jackpot, right? Our spiritual present closet. You know, we want something, then we go to God. And if He doesn't give it to us, we don't get what we want, then we get upset. I'm sure you all have had the experience of knowing somebody that goes through some sort of tragedy, goes through a great loss, their spouse dies, parent dies, something terrible happens to them. And sometimes you'll hear the response, I am angry with God. You know, God did this to me. I was obedient. I trusted Him. I followed Him. And this is how He's rewarded me. Essentially, you're saying, God, I had a plan and you didn't follow it. And we're asking the same question that Joshua did. God, are you going to be with me or are you against me? Because if you're not with me, God, then I'm going to be upset with you. And Jesus, God, straightens it out right away. No. You're here for me. You're to follow me. What happens in your life doesn't change who I am or how much I love you or how much I care for you or what my plans are for you. Because again, if you're trusting in a sovereign, providential God that knows what's going to happen, that's made plans for what's going to happen, then what's happening in your life right now is not out of His control. You know, when they were enslaved in Egypt, it wasn't like God said, I don't know what to do. i got to come up with some way to get them out of here. I I don't know. No, He knew what He was going to do. They get to the promised land. He takes them over. Circumcision, Passover. Now it's not like God says, oops, what am I going to do now? They can't go into physical battle. No, God knew what He was doing. He had a plan. Are we following God? Or are we walking around with an expectation that God is following us. Then he says, I am the commander of Yahweh's army. Imagine for a minute, if you will, this foolishness. Joshua and Caleb are are hanging out as they get near the promised land. And Caleb says to Joshua, he says, hey, I, I noticed... You're wearing like some new uh, bracelet there. It's got some lettering and stuff on it. What, what's with the bracelet? And he says, oh, this is my WWMD bracelet. You know, and so whenever I come to a situation, I'm not sure what to do. I look at that and it reminds me, what would Moses do? What? No. Joshua's not following Moses. Moses wasn't the commander of Yahweh's army, just like Joshua is not the commander of Yahweh's army. This individual here 
This pre-incarnate Jesus is the commander of God's armies. You see, Joshua wasn't following Moses. Moses wasn't following Abraham or somebody before him. As Christians, how often, though, do we fall into this trap? You know, we understand, okay, we're following God, but then we fall back on something else that we become a follower of, whether it's our faith in the United States. We're in the United States. We're a Christian country, and so we have faith in this. Oh, no, the country's falling apart. You know, God, restore our faithful country. I'm sorry to break the bad news to you, but we've never lived in a Christian faithful country. We've lived in a country that have had fellow Christians in it, and we've had freedom, but this is not some sort of Christian enclave. We're not following the United States. We're not even ultimately eternal citizens of the United States. Do you place your faith in some sort of political party? Oh, look at how far we've slidden. We can just get the Republicans in. We can end abortion and everything will be good. Or I don't like the way that it went. If we can get the Democrats in a party, then we can have more social justice and mercy and God will be happy. No. Your faith is not in a political party. Or we place our faith in the pastors. John Calvin or John MacArthur or George, or myself. My last church I had been in, we had to discipline our preaching pastor. He sinned and refused to repent of his sin and continued in his sin. And so we had to work the process of discipline and remove him from the pulpit, remove him from office, and discipline him out of the church. And people came and were wondering and questioning. They said, you know, the pastor led me to salvation. It was his testimony, his witness to me that led me to salvation. He baptized me, and everything I've learned, he taught me on Sundays. Is my baptism no good? I mean, do I need to get rebaptized? Do I have to question everything that I've learned? I said, no. You, know, you weren't baptized in his name, you were baptized into Christ. You didn't learn from him. He was the conduit that taught you Scripture. He was never the one that you were following. As long as he taught Scripture, then it was good. He wavers from Scripture, it's no good. We're not following a specific man. I mean, just think of it this way. What are you called? You're called Christians. You know, you're, you're not called MacArthurites. You're not called something else. You're Christians because you're followers of Christ. Joshua understood at this point, I'm following this individual here. This representation of God who makes the area around him holy, that commands the heavenly hosts. Which leads to the third thing then, that true believers also worship. When they follow, they do it by worshiping. True believers worship Yahweh, not some other God. Following this 
book is the book of Judges. And the book of Judges is just this rapid descent of the nation of Israel. They go from this high point here of trust in God, faith in God, willingness to do whatever He tells them, even if it's crazy, being obedient to Him, worshiping Him, to the most heinous things that are recorded within Scripture in the book of Judges. And what went wrong? Judges 21-25, the last verse of that book, says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You see, Israel exchanged the worship of Yahweh for the worship of themselves. They brought in other gods to worship, other things that the people around them told them. They exchanged the commands of Yahweh for the instructions of the world. They exchanged following the will of Yahweh for the pursuit of their own base desires. God's told me to do this, but I think I should do it this way instead. Well, God said this, but you know what? All the smart people today are telling me that this is right and that God is wrong. And they bought the lie and stopped worshiping Yahweh. And they exchanged that worship of Him for the worship of things within the world. And it's so easy for us, likewise, to fall into that same trap. We say, yeah, I I follow God. I'm a Christian. But we don't worship Him. We don't follow Him. We don't listen to Him. We don't understand that this is not a God of our own making, but that this is a God that has come to us, that has adopted us, and has given us the instructions and us the commands. He's not here to bend to our will. We're to break our will to follow His will. This is what a true believer looks like. And this is always the difference throughout all of Scripture between those that are lost and those that are saved. It's not just those superficial exterior things of good works or saying that you believe in Him or saying all the right things, but rather it is a transformed heart. It's a heart that has been taken, as Scripture says, from stone and turned into flesh. And when that happens, when that person is transformed, they're made new, and they recognize who God is. They recognize that He's worthy of worship, that He's worthy of obedience, and that he's faithful. That he's made promises, not just to Israel, but he's also made promises to us. That I'm going to save you. That I have your best intentions in mind. No matter what happens in this world right now. Understand that at the end of the day, I'm going to work it out. And it's going to be good. And these are the marks of a true believer. And this is where... Israel is at this point. And God wants them to have that foundation as they enter into the promised land to start to receive those blessings that have been promised to them. And for us, it's the same. You know, that we've been promised blessings in the future. We've already received blessings from that Abrahamic covenant. Through the, the, the line of David, up through Christ, who was that final Passover lamb 
for us. We've already partaken of those blessings, but we have so many more that are waiting for us. But right now, God's asked us to follow after Him, to be obedient, and to worship Him.